The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Esther 7, verses 1 through 10. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Queen Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Herbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, that the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. You may be seated. Thank you, Sydney. If this is your first week, you may have, um, I'll try and catch you up a little bit. We have been exploring the book of Esther, and in Esther, we have this sweet, innocent, but conflicted hero that she's trying to save her people. But she knows that in order to save her people, she's going to put her life in great danger. And so she's trying to steward this authority that she's been given, but also she's a human. She's afraid for her life. And now we come to the crux of the story where she has to move forward and she's either putting her life at risk and going to be killed or she's saving her people. But this is the moment that we've been waiting for. Before we dive in, I just want to make this comment. Part of what we're going to study today is the way that God uses reversals. For instance, in the book of Genesis, there's this son named Joseph, and he's sort of proud of himself. He's the most loved brother. And his brothers hate him so much that they kidnap him. They make it look like he's dead. They sell him off to slave traders. Joseph ends up 
in Egypt and through many difficulties, he finally actually makes it to the highest place in Egypt. And eventually he gets to run back in to his brothers and he is sort of gathering them and their people into Egypt because of this horrible famine and because of his position, he's allowed to save his people. And at some point, his brothers come to him and they're apologizing. Sorry we did this horrible thing to you. And he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The reason that I tell you that is we're going to see a reversal here in this text, and it's going to point us to a greater reversal in Jesus and in the cross. But just because there are reversals of pain, I don't want you to hear me say or the Scripture say that uh, just because God can work through those difficulties, we're supposed to enjoy that pain. We're supposed to... um, immediately understand that pain. We don't always understand why God works through reversals and through difficulty. And so I want you to hear me say, yes, he does that. But I also want you to pastorally hear me say, it's okay if you still are wounded by the reversals. It's okay if you are still confused about the pain that you will suffer through. Just because he uses our pain to bring good doesn't mean we always understand it, doesn't mean we always like it. So I just want you to hear me say that before we dive in. Would you pray with me? Let's ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Thank you and praise you for your Word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask, God, by your kindness, that you would move powerfully. There are those in the room who have lost much, even this week. Would you bring them healing and comfort? There are those in the room who are feeling beaten down by their sin. Would you lift their chin and let them see Jesus? Father, all of us need a break from ourselves and to be caught up in your Son, Jesus. Would you move powerfully this morning to make it so? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Several years ago, you may remember the news story where there were 21 Christian martyrs beheaded by ISIS. Do you see the story or it jogs your memory? You remember they were put in orange jumpsuits. And they were marched out sort of slowly through this area in the desert. And they were lined up, 21 men who would not recant their testimony for Jesus. And they're spread out on a beach in Libya. And ISIS behind them stood covered entirely in all black. And they pushed the men down to their knees. There's a sense in which it was such a win for ISIS. They have found these people who are sharing, as far as ISIS is concerned, this false story, this false narrative. They've, they've found these men, they've captured these men, and now they're going to humiliate them. They're going to make them afraid, and they're going to take away their ability to ever talk about Jesus ever again. 
And not only that, they're allowed to do it on such a national stage because of technology. They're allowed to execute these followers of Jesus. It looked like such an ISIS win. And yet here we are years later and their testimony lives on. Even as I share it with you, the testimony of these 21 people who lost their heads but did not lose their testimony to Christ. Their words live on even through their death. And not just their words, also their inspiration. When we hear stories like that, we think, wow. What can I give up for Jesus? What can I lay down for Jesus? Their inspiration and their testimony lives on. But there's even one thing further. When they were there, can you imagine being forced to your knees and you know what's coming, but you just don't know when it's coming yet and you hear the heavy breathing of the people all around you and finally the moment comes where The sword comes down and your eyelids close in death. And for those those men, for those martyrs, their eyelids reopen to see the face of Jesus. The worst thing that could be done to them from ISIS was only an entryway into the presence of their king. That's what a reversal is. What meant to keep them silent actually spread the news all over the world. What meant to make them a mockery actually inspires us. What meant to kill them and put them to shame sent them to be with their Savior. You see how God can take ugly things and reverse them and so that even the thing that seems to be the worst part of it actually brings good to others. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in the story of Esther. The sense that Esther is going to experience this reversal. What looked as if her kingdom was going to be crushed by Haman is actually the very thing that gets her saved. Haman, this one who builds a gallows to destroy Mordecai, his Jewish enemy, actually gets impaled on this. That God uses messy, ugly, broken things to bring good through them. And that's what we'll see in Esther. And ultimately, that's what we'll see in your story and in the story of Jesus as well. Just because something looks horrific, and it is, doesn't mean it's beyond God's ability to transform it. You see, we all struggle to live lives of sacrifice, but because of what Jesus has done, we are free to live lives of risk and faith. Let's look together first at Esther and the beauty of being brave. Look with me in verses 1 through 4. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, I have found favor in your sight, O king. And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and for my people, for my request. For we have been sold and my people to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold as merely slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction 
is not to be compared with the loss to the king. We've been waiting for this moment in Esther, and finally it's here in Esther, even though she thinks she's going to be killed for sure, even though she has mixed motives because she didn't want to be put in this position, Esther, as difficult as it is, is brave and moves forward and sacrifices her life for the sake of other people. And I know when we read this story nowadays, it can seem like this, she's just kind of going in and asking her hubby for a favor. But that's not really the context going on here. You remember this. The king himself gave the decree. He stamped it. He sealed it. He gave the decree that Haman brought him to kill the Jews. And so in some sense, she is going in to try and bring his attention to the fact that there's a decree that is going to kill her people, but she has to do it in such a way as where it doesn't embarrass the king who signed it. You see how delicate it is. He's the one who signed it. And she has to bring all this negative attention to it, but not bring negative attention to him. And for her to do this, not only does she have to do it carefully and cleverly, she has to admit to him that she's been lying to him for five years. She wasn't allowed to be a Jew in the king's harem. She wasn't allowed to be there. It wasn't something that would have been tolerated by the king. And so while she goes in to make this request, telling him about the fact that she's a Jew, just like the people that she's asking him to save, she has to say, oh, by the way, king, I've been lying to you for five years. These are my people. I've been not playing by the rules. So she has to do it in such a way that the king is actually motivated, which takes her to be careful. She has to admit that she's been basically lying to the king for five years. And then again, she has to deal with this very fickle man who's full of rage. There's a story of Herodotus, who's a historian, who says that Pythias was one of Xerxes' leaders, rulers, and he had five sons. And Pythias had supported the king he had sent resources to the king. He'd sent sons to the battle. But Pythias has an oldest son, and he basically wants to tell the king, I, I, just send me my oldest son home. It's the heir to my throne. He can develop the land. He can be sort of my legacy. Send me my oldest son home. Don't make him go to war. And that request made Xerxes so mad, he cut his oldest son in half and had his armies march up and down over his carcass. That's the person that she's dealing with. A person who would throw out his wife and exile her because she won't come. A person who flies off into a rage several times throughout the story. And yet she goes forward. She's brave. And she uses subtlety to tie her destiny to the people's destiny. She says, these are my own. You see... She's living a life of bravery, even though it's hard. She's living a life of sacrifice, putting other people's lives in front of her own. The question for us is not, when will you be put in an orange jumpsuit and asked to deny Christ or to admit that you still believe in Christ and your head is going to come off one way or the other? Or when you will have to go into a king and plea for God's people, the church, that that king would save and rescue all the church. That's not what your life is called to. 
Sometimes we feel guilty that we don't have these martyr stories, but that's not the life God called us to. The life He called us to is right here and right now. So the question for you is, how are you being brave for Jesus? How are you putting other people's needs in front of your own for the sake of Jesus? Where are you acting for those who are in danger, those who are marginalized? You may not be called to be a martyr. You may not be called to be Esther, but you are called to live a life of others others being at the center of your life. Others being at the center of your life. You see, what we want to do is to live a life that honors Jesus, that each sin we fight, we get better at it and we conquer it. Each struggle we have, we sort of overcome it in time. That our spirituality grows and grows and grows, which isn't a bad thing. But if you're like me, one of the main reasons you want your spirituality to grow is so you can feel better. Feel better. I want to be a good Christian so that I can, in all honesty, feel better. And what she's doing here is not about her own personal safety. What the martyrs are doing is not about their own personal safety. What Jesus is calling us to is to live a life that exists for the sake of others. How does your life exist for the sake of others? How does your spirituality exist for the sake of others? And if you need proof from the Bible, think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. This life that's supposed to be fruitful because of the Holy Spirit, the fruit is for the other people. Fruit is for other people. It's same in Psalm 1 when God calls us to be a tree planted by living water so that the tree can grow up and provide shade and for, provide fruit for others. But we've taken even spirituality and made it about us. Made it about one more way that we can feel better and not so ashamed one more way that we can feel smart and not so foolish. God calls Christians to live lives that exist for the sake of others. How are you being brave for Jesus? Maybe it's in the locker room and speaking up about how someone is being talked about. Maybe it's in the office and refusing to engage in dismantling somebody else that's being talked about around the water cooler. Maybe it's giving up more of your free time, your me time, so that you have more margin to live a life for the sake of others. The question isn't, are you about to be decapitated? Or are you going into the king? The question is, in your life right now, how are you being brave for Jesus? It's going to cause us to have to move into awkward moments, not avoid them. It's going to have to cause us to give up free time, not look for more of it. It's going to have to cause us to lose some of our reputation, not have it expanded. How are you living a sacrificial life, a brave life for Jesus? Putting others' needs ahead of your own, sacrificing for the sake of others. A good friend of mine, when he was in high school, there was these two rival schools. And he had found out that these two rival schools, one had a point guard for the other school. The other school. 
And it had been rumored and whispered about and sort of discovered that the point guard of the other school's orientation was different than everyone else's. Not only that, but the rival school was going to make banners at the big game and display this news, that they were going to shame this point guard from the opposing school. And my friend found out about it. And first he went directly to the guys and says, we can't do this. We can't hurt someone like this, this publicly, this ugly. And like, whatever, man, stay out of it. And so then he goes to his own school and assures that those guys can't go to the game so that they can't humiliate this rival point guard because of his different orientation. Imagine the sacrifice it took. Now he's made himself a target for the cool guys. Now he has intervened in such a way as it's going to cost him reputation. If following Jesus doesn't cost you anything, you should consider whether or not you're following Jesus or following some version that looks like him. How are you following Christ in sacrifice? I just want you to think about that. I want you to think about in your way on the hall or on the team or at work or at CrossFit or at yoga or with your family. Where is God calling you to love people with sacrifice right now? We get lost in the big stories of martyrs and of Esther and don't realize the little ways that He's calling us to lay down our life right now. What does that look like for you? You see, a godly person like Esther who is brave lives this self-sacrificial life. We also see the ugliness of a selfish life in Haman. Look here. It says this. Haman was terrified before the king and queen from verse 6. And the king arose in his wrath from drinking wine and went to the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, the king said, Well, he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house. You see that Esther is, despite her mixed motives, in her confusion, she is living a sacrificial life for the sake of others, and Haman is building a life around himself where he is the main topic of conversation. He's done that by building up his reputation with the king, by being his drinking buddy. He's done that by having more sons than most. He's done that by being the second in command of all of Persia. He is building a life, and we see in other passages that he gathers people together, and he tells them about how wonderful he is. And it never occurs to him that this plan will be found out. In his selfishness, in his uh, self-oriented thinking, it never occurs to him that his sin to destroy Mordecai, to destroy Mordecai's people, that that'll ever come out in the light of day. And where I want to linger here just for a second is that, that sin does that to us. Sin makes us think that we can hide it. Sin makes us think that it's personal. Sin makes us think that it's private. And our sin will find us out. Our sin will find us out. One of my heroes used to say, when you cover a sin, God will uncover it. 
But when you uncover a sin like we do in confession, God will cover over it with the blood of Christ. Friends, your sin will find you out. It'll find you out. Surely you've experienced that that chilling moment where you're caught in the act of some sin that you had been promised you were going to be safe from. Your sin will find you out. And sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. It makes you think, this is just a small thing. It's no big deal. I'll just do a little bit of this. Okay, so I'm doing more of it than I used to. It's, it's, it's not that big a deal. Surely, surely it's still under control. And then after you are so deep in it that you know that you're deep in it, you want to ask for help, but instead it cries out to you, no, you can't tell anybody about this. You have to keep this under wraps. This is private. This is personal. Don't tell anyone. You'll be isolated if you tell anyone. And you see how sin just keeps lying to you and making you stupider and stupider as you go. When I meet with a couple who has experienced the excruciating pain of infidelity or adultery, and you're meeting with the offended, offending spouse, the spouse who in that moment stepped out on their spouse and did something wrong, you hear the same thing every time. What you hear is, I don't know how I ended up here. It was just a conversation. It was just somebody at work. It was just a little back and forth. It was no big deal. I have no idea how I got here. Isn't it the same voice of the devil in the garden? Oh, it's no big deal. You don't have to obey. You won't surely die. Sin, the flesh, and the devil will cry out to you, it's no big deal. It's a personal matter. And your sin will find you out just like it does here for Haman. This is from an article by Jim Forrest. He talks about a story from Garrison Keillor as well. But he says this, I know it's hard to be read to, but listen to this. He says, it's a common delusion that one's sins are private or affect only a few other people. To think our sins, however hidden, don't affect others is like imagining that a stone thrown into the water won't generate ripples. As Bishop Callisto's Ware observed, there are no entirely private sins. All sins are against my neighbor as against God and against myself. Even my most secret thoughts are in fact making it more difficult for those around me to follow Christ. Let me say that again. Even my most secret thoughts are in fact making it more difficult for those around me to follow Christ. Keeler says this, we depend on each other more than we can ever know. Far from being hidden, each sin is another crack in the world. What he's saying, and what Haman does not take seriously, is that sin is never private. It's ruining our own relationships with ourselves. It's ruining our relationship with our neighbors, and it's ruining our relationship with God, and it's doing all of those things constantly. Sin makes us stupid. It makes us risk things that if we would never risk ordinarily. It makes us dabble with things that if we zoomed out and thought about our children dabbling in them, we would never want that for them. It's that sin tells you that there's going to be no consequences or that 
You have to keep it quiet so that there will be no consequences to keep it on your own because everyone will hate you if you bring it out into the light of day. Sin makes us stupid. It makes us focus on self and how to protect self and how to advance self. You see how it's the opposite of how Esther's living. Esther's living sacrificially for the sake of others. Haman is living for self. Even Albert Einstein said, only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. Only a life lived for others is a life worthwhile. You see the beauty of Esther's sacrifice. You see the danger of Haman's sin and selfishness. But now I want you to see two beautiful things that point us to the cross, that take us from this throne room into the beauty of the cross in the New Testament. It's these reversals that God works throughout the Bible. You heard about the one in Joseph, in Genesis with Joseph. That what looked like what one meant for evil, God meant for good. I want you to see these reversals. But I also want you to see how one person can tie up their destiny with the destiny of another. So let's first look at how one can tie up their destiny and destiny with other. Listen to Esther. If I found favor in your kingdom, favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, then let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She says, King, if this proclamation goes forward, my people are going to die and your own wife is going to die. And she's basically saying, if you want to protect me, then you've got to protect my people. And right there, it's this glorious pointer to Jesus, the one who ties his destiny and your destiny, your life and his life. Listen to this verse. It's from Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where your Christ, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Listen to this. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Esther says, if you're going to kill the Israelites, you're going to have to kill me, king. And Jesus says, when I lay down my life for my people, what is mine becomes theirs. Each Sunday at the end of the service, I ask you to stretch forth your hands and receive the benediction. Part of what I do that is not to creep you out. It's because when you hold your hands out this, you know that you're receiving something. But it's not just receiving something, it's actually me reminding you of what is already yours in Christ. That's what he's saying when Christ, who is your life, he says this, for you died, but we keep running back to the coffin to look at God and look up and say, look at what I've done. Look at what I'm still doing. Look at my identity. And Christ is saying, you died. That's not you anymore. 
That's Jared Huffman there in the coffin, and that's not what I see. What I see over here is my son who obeyed perfectly and came and fought nobly for his people and laid down his life and conquered the grave, raised from the dead, and has now come to rule the heavens and the earth. When God looks at you, if your trust is in Jesus, he sees Christ. And that's what's supposed to cause you to live a risky life of sacrifice because you know you can't actually lose anything. Whatever is taken from you will be given tenfold in heaven. Whatever you give up, you'll be so glad you gave up because you got to give it up for the sake of Jesus. So you see how Esther ties her identity to her people and Jesus ties his life to yours. So I used to be a nobody, an orphan. Well, now you're a son or a daughter. I used to be ashamed. Well, now you experience the pride of God as a beloved son or daughter. I used to not have a future. Now I have a future reigning, co-reigning in heaven with Jesus. Friends, stop running back to the coffin and looking at your old self and shaming your old self and expecting life out of your old self for you died. And your life is now hidden in Christ with God. And that's supposed to set you free. So you see how they share this destiny, the Esther and her people and Jesus and his people. But I want you to see this one last thing and then we'll close. I want you to see that this reversal that we've talked about throughout, this reversal, it comes true in this text and it ultimately comes true in the cross and it can come true in your life too. Haman has built this gallows, this 75 feet high. It's a monstrosity. And he's built it to kill Mordecai the Jew. You see, at the beginning, the whole story starts because Mordecai the Jew won't bow down to Haman. Mordecai the Jew won't bow down to the Persian. And now in the last scene, the Persian is bowing down, in fact, falling before the Jew, Esther. It's this reversal what, what Haman thought would kill his mortal enemy, he actually is killed upon, he's impaled upon. The Bible has these reversals. The very thing that you thought was the worst news actually somehow is the channel to transform and bring good news. And if you can't see it quite here in Esther, think about the cross. Think about the cross. You remember at the very beginning, way back in Genesis Adam and Eve are there and they're living perfect relationship with each other and with God and they're, and they're celebrating that and they're basking in that. And the devil wants to mess with God's story, mess with God's plan. And so he says to them, are you sure you can't eat from there? Are you sure you can't? Because he wants to get them to sin. Why? Because he wants them to die. Now watch. He wants them to sin so that they can die. Death, this horrible thing that wreaks have us, havoc on us all. This awful thing that wasn't part of God's design for us. And then when we get to the New Testament, when we get to Jesus, we have a cross. Death, the worst thing, the, the worst thing any of us experience, this, this thing that's shrouded by sin and shame, death, 
the worst news possible, and yet Jesus takes death and on the cross takes your death and my death, and he transforms the worst possible topic in all of history, and he makes death the very thing that people through it will receive life. Meaning, I will take this thing, Satan, that you tried to use against me, and I'm going to use that specific thing to stick it to you, to bring goodness to my people. And the point for you is is that if he can take the magnitude of death and bring something good out of it, life for his people, how much more so can he bring good out of your little deaths, out of your smaller crosses, out of your difficulties in life? It doesn't make them easy and it doesn't make them manageable. But it's just calling us to zoom out and to consider the fact if God can bring good out of death, out of a gallows, out of a cross, how much more so can he bring good out of the difficult things that I'm facing? Friends, we're called to live a life of sacrifice, not a life of selfishness. And he's called us to remember now that we can live lives of sacrifice because our life is now hidden with Christ and God. And as bad as things seem sometimes, God is still at work. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to live brave like Esther, but there are things in our way. Would you empower us and equip us and motivate us? So that we can live brave. Would you keep us from living lives that circle around ourselves? Keep us from living narcissistic, selfish lives, even in our spirituality, where all all we want is to feel better. Keep us from self. Help us to bask in the fact that our destiny is now tied to your destiny in Jesus. Remind us that when we struggle, God will transform even the worst things to give life to us and to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.